Well, keep your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 3 as we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Ephesians today. Um, just a quick note, almost uh, as an aside, next week uh, I'll be heading out with my family to uh, visit uh, my parents and some extended family in California. And while I'm there, I'm going to have the opportunity next Sunday to preach at Grace Church in La Mesa, a church that you all, that we together helped plant uh, 10 years ago now. And so uh, I'm looking forward to being there and taking a greeting on behalf of our whole congregation to Tab and Sung and that church that is there because of our partnership together in the gospel and because of what God is doing not only here but way beyond our locale here. Well, we'll get back to Ephesians chapter 3 in just a moment, but I want to start perhaps with a quote from another book. I assume that some of you are familiar with a sweet little book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It's a classic book about Christian, about living as a Christian, and it's written in kind of a memorable way. If you're not familiar with it, it's an imaginative piece of fiction written as if it is a correspondence, a series of letters between two demons, a senior demon, if you will, and a junior demon, and they're trying to prevent their patient from making progress in following the one that these imaginary demons call the enemy. The one they call the enemy is the one we call Lord, right? Here's a fascinating little piece from the Screwtape Letters about... The church and our experience of church. Screwtape, the senior demon, always begins his letters in the same way. My dear Wormwood, he says. And then he says this surprising thing. One of our greatest allies at present is the church itself, this demon says. And he continues, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible like an army. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patience sees is the half-finished sham gothic structure on the new building estate. And when he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious songs, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees... Just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. And then this imaginary demon goes on with his advice. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind go to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, 
or have odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment, which certainly is coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. This fictional letter, and it's just a fictional letter, but this fictional letter from the Screwtape Letters helps us see something important. It helps us see that a great problem in the church today is that we don't see the church for what it truly is. Now listen, we all have reasons to feel disappointed with our experience of church. Some of us will feel disappointed with our experience of church for relatively trivial reasons, like the style of worship or something like that. But let's be honest, some of us have very serious reasons to feel disappointed with our experience of church. Maybe, for example, you've been hurt by church leaders in the past. Listen, I know we all have reasons to feel disappointed with the church, and the feelings of disappointment are real. But as the enemy tries to lean on those feelings of disappointment... And as our enemy may try to leverage those feelings of disappointment. I wonder, how well do we know the splendor of God's design for the church? Faced with real disappointments about our experience of church, how well do we know God's design? For the church of Jesus Christ. The church in Ephesus, which received this letter from the Apostle Paul somewhere around the year 60 or maybe 61 AD, they also had to deal with this challenge of seeing past their disappointments and seeing past their divisions in order to see God's design for the church. And as we continue in our sermon series and listen to Paul's words to them back then, we're going to listen in for God's words to us today, which I pray will help us see past our disappointments and see past our divisions so that we might see God's design for his church today. We'll follow this passage as it unfolds. And so we'll think a little bit, first of all, about the situation facing the church. And then we'll think a little bit about the mystery of the church. And then we'll think about the point in this passage for the church. We begin with the situation facing the church. Now, I admit, by the way, that this whole paragraph from Ephesians chapter 1 down to Ephesians uh, Ephesians chapter one, three one down to three thirteen. This whole paragraph is hard to read and it's hard to follow. Ephesians three one in almost every English translation ends with a dash. That's because it's not a full sentence. 
Paul is writing a letter to a church, probably dictating it out loud to someone else who's writing it. And he's beginning to express something, but then he realizes mid-sentence that he needs to explain something else before he finishes that thought. And so the sentence that begins in verse 1 and ends in verse 1 with a dash, that sentence is picked up again down in verse 13. And then there's this large paragraph of what we might call theological reflection there in the middle. In any case, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 begins by describing a certain situation. And what is that situation? We might summarize it like this. The situation is that it looks like the gospel is not winning. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So what's going on with Paul as he writes this letter? When we get to this dash. <laughs> what's going on with Paul? He's imprisoned. He also mentions his imprisonment in chapter 4, verse 1, and his chains in chapter 6, verse 20. But why? Is Paul imprisoned? Well, you probably know that Paul is not imprisoned for something like murder or sedition. He is not imprisoned for refusing to pay taxes to the empire. Maybe if you have been to Sunday school or taught Sunday school at some point in your life, you would say, why is Paul imprisoned? He's imprisoned because of the gospel. And like a lot of Sunday school answers, that's partly true. It's true as far as it goes, but there's probably something more that we should say about that. Why is Paul imprisoned? Paul is imprisoned, yes, because of the gospel, but more specifically, Paul is imprisoned because he is preaching a gospel message that insists that people from other cultures are fully included in the family of God. Acts 21 gives us the backstory to this. It tells us about how Paul went on a missionary journey that included time in the city of Ephesus. And the Ephesian people, that is to say the people of Ephesus, they lived in that time in uh, in the Roman province of Asia. Today, Ephesus would be a part of the nation of Turkey. And so to Jewish eyes, Saul of Tarsus was a Jewish person, and to, Saul, to Paul, to other people from his cultural background, to Jewish eyes, the people of Ephesus, these Asians, were Gentiles. The word Gentile is a Jewish term that refers to people from any other cultural backgrounds. People from any other ethnicity. And Acts 21 tells that when Paul came back to Jerusalem after this missionary journey, someone had been traveling with him. It was an Asian brother named Trophimus, specifically from the city of Ephesus. And then when Paul came to Jerusalem along with Trophimus, immediately Trophimus the Ephesian is treated in Jerusalem with suspicion because he is a Gentile. 
because he's culturally different. And so then when Paul finally enters the temple in Jerusalem, some of the Jewish folks started a first century version of a media storm over the issue. Here's how the book of Acts describes Paul's arrest in Acts 21. Men of the, the people, the Jewish folks are saying, men of Israel, help us. This man, this is the man who preaches against our people everywhere and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple. Now, are these quite accurate descriptions of Paul? No, but let's go on, right? These are their charges against him. And they say, and he even defiles this holy place by bringing in Gentiles. For earlier that day, they had seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they assumed Paul had taken him into the temple. The whole city was rocked by these accusations, and a great riot followed. Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed behind him. And as they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And then the commander arrested Paul and ordered him bound with two chains. That's the story of how Paul was imprisoned according to Acts chapter 21. So why is Paul imprisoned? As he says in Ephesians 3.1, he's imprisoned because of Jesus Christ and because of the gospel. But more specifically, Paul is imprisoned because his gospel preaches that people from other cultures are fully included. Maybe we would say it more specifically by saying Paul is in prison because his lifestyle communicates that the gospel of Jesus Christ fully includes people who are different than him. His lifestyle communicates that the gospel of Jesus Christ fully includes people like Trophimus, the Asian brother from Ephesus. That's what got Paul arrested so back here in ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 when paul says i am a prisoner of christ jesus on behalf of you gentiles you see what he's saying he's not really exaggerating this is just an historical fact he was imprisoned Because he was willingly associated with these Asian believers. And some people from his own cultural background didn't like it. In the previous paragraph, Paul said that Christ came to destroy the dividing wall of hostility and to make all of us Jews and Gentiles into one body. But Paul did not just talk the talk about this stuff. He walked the walk. And now it was becoming costly. Now, can we just take a moment and imagine the effect On these Ephesian Christians. They know that Paul is imprisoned. Because 
he chose to be associated with the Asian brother Trophimus. Just being associated with this Asian brother got Paul imprisoned. And if you're there in Ephesus having sent Trophimus along with Paul, imagine the feelings that are weighing on your heart. He's suffering because of us. And listen, the vast majority of us here in this room would not qualify as Jewish folks if we did ethnicity testing. So we all too are Gentile folk. And like the folks in Ephesians, we need to look at this situation and we need to understand through their eyes what this feels like to realize that Paul got arrested simply for willingly being associated with people like us. That's how much other people don't want people like us involved in the family of God. That hurts. Consider the message it sends when the gatekeepers of the Lord's temple Say, if you're associated with people who are culturally different, you don't belong here. That kind of thing is hard to shake. And then there's the result for Paul. He's in chains now because of the guy that you sent along with him. So if we want to summarize the situation facing the church here at the beginning of Ephesians 3, we might put it like this. In this moment, it looks like the gospel is not winning. In this moment, it at least looks like Paul's gospel, which insists on the inclusion of people who are culturally different. It looks like Paul's gospel is not winning. In this moment, it looks like the world and the ethnic divisions of the world are more powerful than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this moment, it looks like maybe this multicultural church idea is not worth it. See, in the early church, being a part of a church family with people from other cultures and being a part of a church with people from other backgrounds, it was really challenging. And it raises a question that we still have to face in the church in America today. Is it worth it? Is it worth it even when the gospel doesn't look like it's winning? Is it worth it even when the cultural divisions of the world around us seem to reach more deeply than the gospel? That's the situation facing the church. The situation mentioned in verse 1. Paul is imprisoned on behalf of you Gentiles. It looks like his gospel is not winning. 
But where will we go when it looks like the gospel of Jesus Christ is not winning? Paul leads this church facing disappointments and divisions into a theological reflection about God's design for the church. A theological reflection that runs from Ephesians 3.2 down to Ephesians 3.12. See, with this dash, Paul moves from the situation facing the church to a reflection on the mystery of the church. I don't know if you noticed that word repeated several times in this passage. Ephesians 3.3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Or Ephesians 3.4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Or again, in Ephesians 3.9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden For ages in God. So first question, what kind of mystery are we talking about here? Very often it is described or explained that when Paul uses the word mystery, he means something that was once concealed and unclear and now revealed and made clear. I think maybe a better way to describe it is to say that we think of the word mystery just a little bit differently than Paul thought of the word mystery speaking the Greek language 2,000 years ago. When we as Americans speaking English think about a mystery, we tend to think about what we might call the first three quarters of a mystery novel. When we think of a mystery, we think of the part of the story when all of the puzzle pieces are out there, but it's not yet clear how these puzzle pieces in the story are going to all fit together. That's what we think of when we think of something that is a mystery. That's what we think of when we think of something mysterious. A whole bunch of puzzle pieces, but how do they fit together? When Paul uses the word mystery, however... He's referring to what we might call the last chapter of a mystery novel. The last chapter of the mystery novel when all of the puzzle pieces finally come together and with a sudden gasp of wonder we say, of course, the clues were there in front of me all along. And we marvel at the wisdom of the story's hero who was able to put together all of those different pieces that as best as we could tell as we were following along didn't seem to fit together. That's what Paul means when he's talking about a mystery. He doesn't so much mean all of the scattered puzzle pieces. He means more that last chapter of the mystery as the puzzle pieces are beginning to come together in one coherent picture. Next question, what is this mystery, this picture that is coming together after all of these ages? And Paul describes that mystery, he defines that mystery in Ephesians 3.6. Look there with me if you would. He says it for us, Plainly, because he doesn't want to leave us dying in the misery of mystery, right? Ephesians 3, 6 says, This mystery is that the Gentiles 
are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is the mystery? The mystery is the global multicultural church of Jesus Christ, which is characterized by both diversity and unity at the same time in Jesus. Why do I say it's characterized by both diversity and unity? Because Ephesians 3, 6 says the mystery is that the Gentiles, that's diversity, all the nations, all the ethnicities of the earth, people who are culturally different than Paul and the people that he grew up around. That's diversity. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's a diverse congregation of people unified in one inheritance from the Lord. And not only fellow heirs, but members of the very same body. And not only members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through what? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in a world full of ethnic divisions, in a world in which the gatekeepers of God's temple wanted to say, if you are culturally different than us, then you don't belong. In such a world, Paul makes this bold claim about God's plan. He says that God's design for the church is that we would be a diverse and multicultural thing. But in all of that diversity of cultural backgrounds, there would also be a unity together, a oneness together. How and why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next question. Why did God design this mystery? And we can answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, God designed this mystery of a diverse yet unified church together in Christ. Why did he design it? He designed it ultimately for his own glory. So that we would stand in awe of the one who is able to unify people from every tribe and nation and people and language. Throughout history, on a global stage, God has been working out his plan so that we might see it. And so that we might praise his name, but it doesn't end there. It's not just that God is seeking His glory throughout history and on a global stage. More than that, God has been seeking to demonstrate His glory throughout eternity and on a cosmic stage. Through this diverse yet unified church of Jesus Christ. Look with me if you would at Ephesians 3.10. All right, and by, by the way, do you know um, 
in your phone, you've got like emojis, and there's the emoji that has like the exploding brain. I just want to suggest to you or warn you, I think future translations need one of those emojis at the end of verse 10 before we read it again, all right? But here's, here's what Ephesians 3.10 says. Why did God design the church as this diverse yet unified body of Christ? Ver, chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God, pause for one second, that word manifold could be translated multicolored, like Joseph's multicolored or technicolor or splendorous coat in the Old Testament, right? So that through the church, the multicolored manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the ruler's and authorities in the heavenly places. Exploding brain emoji. (laughs) Do you know why God is working out this plan to bring together people from every cultural background in the church? He's doing it not only so that we will join in saying, Praise your name for your glorious wisdom. But he's doing it as a display of his mind-blowing, multicolored, splendorous wisdom before all of the rulers and authorities, even in the heavenly places. Now, I've been around the church long enough to know That if I were going to design something to bring glory to me, it would probably look a lot prettier than the mess that we often make of the church, right? But perhaps this is precisely what God is busy doing. In the gospel of Jesus Christ which not only brings you and me individually into a right relationship with God, it not only creates a new me, but it creates a new we. And as we are united together under the headship of Jesus Christ in one global body, so that the temple of God where He is worshipped is no longer one building made of stones in one place on this planet, but is now a many-colored many-voiced tribe of human beings in every part of the planet, in every continent on which humans dwell. As the family of Jesus Christ is expanding in this way, not only do we say, glory to Jesus Christ, But his glory is demonstrated before even the angelic beings. Why does God do this? Why has he designed this mystery? In part, it's for his glory. But we also need to say something more than that. He did this not only for his glory. He did this also for our good. Look with me, if you would, here at a moment at verses 11 and 12. 
This, what's this? The good news of Jesus Christ that brings all of us together. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to this. In whom we, not just me, not just a couple people in this congregation, but in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. I wonder if you see some of the beauty of God's plan shining through. Left to our own sinful hearts and left in our own pride, we would keep building dividing walls of hostility between one another. Because of our own sinfulness and because of our own pride left to ourselves, we would keep on living our lives separated from God and increasingly dividing from one another. Because of our sin and because of our pride left to ourselves, most of us would end up a lot like those gatekeepers of God's temple in Paul's day who said, if you're not from a culture like mine, then you don't belong here among the Lord's people. But here is the many-colored, splendorous wisdom of God who says, through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, I am going to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. And I am going to replace a temple of stones with a temple made up of people. Some of them drawing near to the throne of grace today in moccasins. Some of them today drawing near to the throne of grace in South Asian saris. Some of them drawing near to the throne of grace in Hawaiian shirts of North America. Some of whom drawing near to the throne of grace in Middle Eastern turbans. But here is the many-colored, manifold wisdom of God. That he has replaced a temple of brick and stone with a people called out of darkness and into his marvelous light that we might live to the praise of his glory. And he has given access to his presence, not just to one or two people from one or two backgrounds, not just to one or two of the most holy people in the congregation, but he has given this freedom of access to his very own presence to us. This eclectic mixed bag of humanity that gathers together on Sundays. God says, I'm going to do something that the rulers and authorities would not have foreseen. I'm going to build my people out of this mixed bag of humanity that is the church. You see, the plan 
that we're talking about here as the mystery. It is the crescendo of God's redeeming work in all of history. The gospel of Jesus Christ is creating a unified and multicultural body together as one in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing across the ages. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is doing that for the glory of God and also for our good. But that brings us to the end of this passage in verse 13. What's the point for the congregation today? Remember, this passage began with an idea. The situation facing the church is that it looks like the church isn't winning. The situation facing the church is that, y'all know, it looks like the gospel is not winning right now. Paul says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of y'all Gentiles. And then he went along with this theology of what the church is and what God is doing through the church. But now he's got a point to land for the congregation today. And that point is found in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. What's the point for the church today? Don't lose heart. I know it looks like the church isn't winning. But consider what the church truly is by God's design. And as a result, church, don't lose heart. Even when the path forward involves suffering. This is a theme that Paul sometimes works out in his letters. This kind of scale kind of thing. And very often in his letters, Paul will put in front of us kind of a set of scales and he'll take on the one side of the scales all of the pain and hardship, all of the difficulties and challenges that are bound up with this life And following Jesus in this life. And he lays them in all of their weight on the scales. And we can kind of hear the scales go clink down into the floor below. Because the burdens that we carry, the challenges that we face, they're heavy. But then Paul will say, I know those are real. In fact, I've experienced them myself in very deep ways. But we need to see something else on the other side of these scales. And Paul will gather up the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and scoop up all of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and lay them on the other side of the scale as we hear a clink. Realizing that the glory of what we experience in Jesus Christ is even Weightier than all of the hardships and challenges and pain 
that goes along with it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for example, Paul is exhorting the church in Corinth not to lose heart. And he says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, like the things around us that would lead us to say it sure looks like the gospel isn't winning, but instead look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As Paul acknowledges the situation facing the church, and then lays in front of us the glorious mystery that is the church, God's way of bringing glory to Himself throughout the world and even throughout eternity on a cosmic stage. His point is this. He's saying, don't lose heart because the mystery of the church is worth living for And if necessary, the mystery of the church is even worth suffering for. A few years ago, John Stott was preaching to his church. I'm writing something about John Stott these days, and he kind of has an apartment in my head, so you'll have to pardon me for quoting him so often. But a few years ago in the 1970s, John Stott was preaching to his church on the occasion of the 150th birthday of their congregation. Obviously, he had not planted it. And on the occasion of their 150th birthday, he selected as their text to be preached Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And what would John Stott say to his congregation on the 150th birthday of All Souls Langham Place in London? Here's part of what he said. He said, now it is understandable, even inevitable, that we are critical of many of the church's inherited structures and traditions. Maybe not what you expect him to say on the church's birthday. It's inevitable that there are criticisms of us. Every church, in every place, at every time, is in need of reform and renewal. But, he goes on, we need to beware, lest we despise the church of God and become blind to His work in history. We may safely say that God has not abandoned His church, however displeased with it He may be. He is still building and refining it. And if God has not abandoned His church, if God has not abandoned this gospel message, how can we? If the church is central to God's purpose in history and even eternity, should it not be central in your life as well? I think it's important for us to digest both parts of John Stott's message. Both the reality of our disappointments with the church 
and the reality of continuing on in following our Lord who has not given up on His church. A recent poll by the pollster people in a research organization showed some interesting data about people's views of the church. Among our neighbors in America, only about 36% of our neighbors have a positive view of the church, according to this most recent poll. So about one out of three. However, 71% of Americans have a positive view of Jesus. And of course, of those 71% of Americans who have a positive view of Jesus, many of whom have a low view of the church, what's happening nationwide in America is more, is more and more people are saying, sure, I've got a positive view of Jesus, a negative view of the church, so I'm going to go on feeling like I have a positive view of Jesus, but I'm just not going to participate in that messy thing called church. And if I were to interact with a friend or a neighbor who expressed that kind of position, I have a high view of Jesus but a low view of the church, so I'd rather not. What would I say to them? I would want to say I agree with your critique, but I disagree with your conclusion. In fact, I think if the Apostle Paul were here, he would say, I agree with your critiques. There are a lot of problems in the church. But I disagree with your conclusion. She's still worth sticking with. In fact, I would venture to suggest that the Lord Jesus himself would say to our neighbors, oh, I agree with your critiques of the church. Have you read the book of Revelation? Jesus has critiques of his church. But he does not disagree with the conclusion that says, because there is something to critique, I will not participate. Instead, our Lord Jesus Christ, with much to critique, chooses to give himself in love. Week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. To his imperfect body, the church. And so, in light of our Lord's own love for his imperfect body, the church... And in light of this compelling vision of what God has designed the church to be. In a world of division and opposition. We may stand confident that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still creating. A multicultural yet unified church. For the glory of God. Demonstrated on earthly and even heavenly stages for His glory and for our good. And therefore, as challenging 
as life in the church may be. And as often as we may look around and say, it sure seems like the church isn't winning. Therefore, brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. The mystery of the church is worth living for. It's worth loving. It's worth striving to maintain the unity of the peace in. It's worth giving yourself and your gifts to. It's worth pouring yourself out for. The mystery of the church is worth living for. And if necessary, sometimes it is even worth suffering for. As our Lord Jesus Christ himself has made plainly clear. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.